Take your Bibles this morning and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, We are hopeful of being able to give you some information about heaven that will make a difference in your life. It's not merely just important for us to know something, but it's important for us to know it so that it can make a difference in what we do and how we behave. And so this morning we're talking about heaven and hopeful that it will be an encouraging time, but also a a time where you begin to see how this fits into everyday life. It's not just something that you'll hope for in the future, but something that you will practice in your present. I have a a class of students that I teach, and uh, I told them that I was going to be speaking here uh, today, and so I asked them for their help. And so I gave them a card, and on the card I asked them to uh, describe for me or to tell me what they thought heaven would be like heaven would be like. And here are some of their answers. One student said, cheerful, bright, long, Jesus. Those words were there. Another student wrote, completely full of God's presence, overwhelming peace and happiness. Another student wrote, it's going to be awesome. He'll wipe away our tears, personal comfort, radiant. We get to see God be a part of his eternal reign. Another, heaven is a place conjured up by the American subconsciousness, which means it is just a gathering of souls in a dark place. I know who that student is, and you'd laugh because he's laughing as I read this. Trust me. Another student wrote this. No pain. Family members reunite. Joy of everybody loving. All kinds of people, past and present, seeing Jesus. And this uh, this was not my favorite, but I thought this was interesting. Uh, it's a big, big house with lots and lots of room, a big, big table with lots and lots of food, a big, big yard where we can play football, a big, big house, it's my father's house. I think that's a song, right? Uh, So anyway, so I should have expected something like that. Uh, The idea here is just to help us to understand that there are all kinds of things that people think about heaven. But what we want to do is we want to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, and see what God says about heaven. And as a result, maybe it will make a difference in our lives. And I'm hopeful that we will think about heaven more than just when we are either at a funeral or reading the obituaries, but that we would think about heaven every day so that it makes a difference. So this morning, what I would like for us to do is look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, and we will learn three truths about heaven. Three truths about heaven in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Verse 1 says this, Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. The first truth about heaven is we get a new body guaranteed. We get a new body guaranteed. Verse 1, Paul, the tent maker, compares our earthly body to a tent. 
You know, the Apostle Paul, in order to sustain himself and not to be a burden on others, would sometimes go into a place, and while he was not preaching, he would be making tents. And so he uses something from his own life as an analogy of what our bodies are like. They are like a tent, he says. And the tent is something that is temporary, that is just for the moment that it's being used. Of course, his Jewish audience, they would think of tents and they would think of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles, which is a feast that celebrates the temporary dwellings of the Jewish people as they were on their way to the promised land. They would dwell in tents in the wilderness and eventually make their way into the promised land. And so this idea of the tent is obviously temporary. And notice what he says. He says, now we know that if this earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God. This earthly tent we live in is destroyed. It is fragile. It is ready for destruction. Harry Ironside, who was the pastor of Moody Church, said this about this passage. He said, the old house is breaking down. With some of us, the roof is thatched with white hair. The idea of your body, it's breaking down. It's ready for destruction. It's ready to be destroyed. Paul knows that his body is an inadequate shelter for the life to come. He knows that it is only a temporary thing. It is only a temporary dwelling for what it is that God has in store for the future. And he says the tent, which is being destroyed or will be destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven. You notice how he changes there? He goes from a tent to a house. Think about a tent as temporary. Think of a house as something more permanent. And he describes the builder of this house, and he describes what the house will be like. He says it is a house from God. It is not made with human hands. And he says that it is eternal. Those are pretty good qualifications for a house, wouldn't you say? It's a wonderful description of a body that will be ours. It is a body from God, not made with human hands, but something that is eternal. And when he uses the word eternal, he's not talking about preexistent. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying God has this cachet of bodies from which to choose from and he will give you one. That's not what he means. But what he means is he has a way of making our bodies new and the body that he gives you that is new will never be destroyed. It is indestructible. It is something that will last forever. And so a body awaits us after death. And that body is the body that God is making for us. I don't know about you, but I've lived in temporary housing before. One of the first times when my wife and I, we got married, we moved into an apartment. And we moved into the apartment. It was temporary. That's what we believed. It was three years temporary, but still it was temporary. And we always looked forward to our house because the house seemed to then belong to us, something better. And so what Paul is trying to drive home to us is this idea of your body that you now have is temporary and the body that you will get is going to be much better because it is made by God and not with human hands. In verse 2, he switches his metaphor. Notice he goes from talking about tents to talking about clothes. And he says uh, in verse 2, he says, Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. He talks about we grown. He's talking about those people who are living in tents. That's us, our bodies. Paul was living in his own body at that time, his earthly body. And he's saying we are groaning. That's what happened when I got out of bed this morning, right? 
I groaned. I mean, this body of mine, there are parts that are sore. My son loves to throw the football, and so we do that a lot. And I'm not kidding. You know, I feel like I should ice after every time my arm gets so sore. And what does he do? He goes on to something else like it's nothing. My body, I groan. And we groan because we want something more. We want something different. We groan prompted by the desire to be more abundantly and better clothed in this situation. You see, Paul is saying, I don't want to be ashamed. I don't want to be ashamed and take the body that I have to heaven. I want the new body so that I'm clothed properly. You remember, of course, that Adam and Eve were the ones that introduced shame with nakedness. Uh, They were ashamed of their bodies. They hid from God, and he made a covering for them. And the same idea is here. We don't want to go to heaven without the body that God's going to give to us. Uh, That would make us ashamed. We'd be unprepared. We wouldn't have what he wants for us to have. Look at verse 3. He says this, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Verse 4, for while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal now may be swallowed up by life, by life. He uses that word again, doesn't he? He says we groan and are burdened. You say, well, you know what? I really like my body. I've got 2% body fat. I've got a 12 resting heart rate. My cholesterol is below 50. You know, you say, I love my body. Well, think about this for just a moment. If you love your body, imagine how great the body's going to be that God gives to you. So be willing to give it up because mortality or the mortal is going to be swallowed up in life so that the body that we now have is temporary and we're going to get a body that is eternal, a better quality of body. And he uses these terms here. He talks about groaning. He says we groan physically. We groan. He says we are burdened, weighed down with our bodies because they are beginning to to break down over time. But please understand, we're talking about more than just physical. You know, physical bodies break down, and we we all know that. Uh, I was teaching on Thursday, I think it was, and was it a little colder on Thursday or Friday? And the heat kicked on in our building. And so my classroom, the heat kicked on. And the fan, of course, that hadn't been used in a while began to to work, and it was kind of squeaking. And, you know, students never miss anything. And one student said, what's that squeaking? And a kid in the front row said, that's Mr. Baker's knees. (laughs) What? Uh, We're breaking down. We groan. We're weighed down. We have physical pain. But please understand that the groaning is not just physical but also spiritual. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 talks about groaning, talking about struggling, talking about wrestling with this flesh, the body, and how it it, it hurts him spiritually. He wants to do one thing, but he can't do it because of his body. And he's limited spiritually because of his body. Uh, I emailed a friend and I said, listen, I'm going to be talking about heaven. Give me some insight about heaven. And this person sent back this, and this is the line that they sent me. They said, I just hope that all the time, uh, I just hope all the time that the ache will be gone when I'm in heaven. And this friend, I know what they were talking about. They have an ache because of a, a spiritual issue in their life. And sometimes we forget that this body that we now possess limits us spiritually. We are incarcerated by flesh, and so we stumble And Paul says, you know what, something better is coming, not only physically, but spiritually you will be helped 
because of this new body that I am going to, uh, that we are going to get from God. Uh, notice what he says in verse five. This is the guarantee part. In verse five, he says this. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. The guarantee comes in two ways. First of all, God made it. Second of all, we've got his spirit as a deposit. Now, this idea of a deposit is just what it sounds like. When you give a deposit, what's the expectation? Payment's coming, right? You put down a deposit, payment's coming. Or, or a better analogy that might be more familiar with you uh, is an engagement ring. Why do you give an engagement ring? You give an engagement ring promising that there's going to be a wedding, right? And so that's the idea here. The Holy Spirit has been left with us to guarantee that we're going to get a heavenly body. And so Paul is telling us that. Uh, so verses 1 through 4 are not just wishful thinking. It's not just something we're hoping for. Boy, I sure hope I get a new body. Boy, I sure hope my, 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 my physical and spiritual limitations are lifted. It is a guarantee that God is going to do that in our lives. And that's what Paul's saying in verse 5. And please don't think this. Paul does not have a death wish. Paul is not saying, boy, I just wish I could die. That's not it. He's explaining his circumstance, and he's trying to help us to be encouraged that a new body is coming. And so the limitations that you are experiencing physically and spiritually will be lifted with a heavenly body. You say, wow, all of that is, just seems so complicated. What's the point, right? Why do we need to know that? Well, the reason we need to know that is because of what we're going to do in heaven. When we get to heaven, we're going to have a different body, and we're going to do things. Please do not be mistaken and think of heaven as clouds and this ethereal out-of-body experience. That's not it. Don't think of souls floating around without any kind of attachment. That's not it. Heaven is going to be about bodies and about people and about us doing things. In, in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, remember he talked about a place? He talked about going there and being there. It's a real place that we're going to, and since it's a real place, we need bodies for that. And so when we get to heaven, we will have these new bodies for heaven, new bodies that will serve, new bodies that will worship, new bodies that will explore, new worlds. You know, the new earth is going to be an unbelievable place that we will be allowed to explore, and we will need the bodies to be able to do that. And so as we look at this and hope for this change, we think about heaven Heaven will be filled with music, with reading, with writing. Don't think in terms of perfection. You know, too many times that's what we think. We think, I will have a perfect body or I will have a perfect life. Don't think in those terms. Instead, think in these terms. I will have a sinless body. I will have a sinless life. So, like, for example, will we play in heaven? Well, of course we will. Who does God, Jesus celebrate he celebrates little children, and he encourages his disciples to have a childlike spirit. What do children love to do? Play. Will we play in heaven? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, think about sports. Will there be sports in heaven? Now, again, you're thinking in terms of perfection. You're thinking, man, I can hardly wait because I'm going to be a perfect golfer, right? So every drive will be a hole-in-one. Don't think in terms of perfect. Think in terms of sinless. Is it a sin to shank the ball? You say, yeah, brother, you should see my swing. That's a sin. Seriously, though, right? 
There's no sin in shanking the ball. So will you shank the ball in heaven? You will. (laughs) But will you play golf? I really think you will. I think there will be sports in heaven. I, I can't imagine the Apostle Paul, who has so many sports analogies with what he's teaching us, to then us get to heaven and there not be sports up there. You've been involved in a competitive match before. And a competitive match, it's been good, right? It's been a good thing. Competition. So don't think in terms of perfect. Think in terms of sinless. I will have this sinless body. I will have this sinless body. And it will work and function for me. It will be new. It will be a part of what we have. We will have this body. Uh, Martin Luther, who the great reformer, he said this. He said, if there's no laughing in heaven, I don't want to go. And sometimes we think that, don't we? We think heaven is going to be all about this. Praise God from whom all creatures flow. Right? It's not going to be like that. It's going to be a sinless existence with a body that's sinless. That's what he's trying to remind us of. This mortal will be swallowed up in immortality. Now, there will be things that are about your body, this new body, that will just be magnificent. Have you ever heard Johnny Erickson Tata? She is the, the, the lady. She's a quadriplegic. Uh, she broke her neck when she was 18 years old in a diving accident. And I love to hear her speak because she speaks not of, of two things most often. One is the supreme, awesome, wonderful God whom she serves. She's in a wheelchair, quadriplegic, and she talks glowingly about this heavenly father who loves her and cares for her. And the second thing she often speaks about is, is, is her new body, how she'll have a new body and she'll be dancing in heaven with Christ. It's a new body. It's coming. It's guaranteed. So as we look at heaven and think about heaven, one of the truths we need to understand is that we get a new body. We will go from this place to the next and get a new body. The Greek philosopher Aristotle, in observing the Christians during his time, he said this. He says, if any of the righteous among the Christians passes from this world, they rejoice and offer thanks to God and they they celebrate this body and send it off with thanksgiving and songs as though they were setting out from one place to the next. That's exactly what we're doing. We are rejoicing in the hope of a new body. Now, the second truth that we need to understand about heaven is found in verses 6 through 8. Not only uh, do we get new bodies guaranteed, but notice what happens in verses 6 through 8. Heaven should influence each day. Heaven should influence each day. Look at verse 6. In verse 6 he says, Therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Now let's pause for just a moment. Do you see what he's saying in verses 6 through 8? He is saying you were either here in your body or you are there with God. Did you catch that? So please remember this. There's no intermediate state. You are either on earth or you are with God. You say, well, doesn't there need to be an intermediate state? There would be if we need to be purified, if we needed to kind of get things cleaned up so that we could get into the presence of God. But why do we not have to have that intermediate state? Why can we go from here to his presence? Because of Christ. What did Christ do? Christ died for me. He paid it all. 
So there's no need for me to linger somewhere so that I can kind of get cleaned up and purified and get into the presence of God. Because what happens is when I trust Christ as my Savior, I'm clothed in the righteousness of God, and he sees me robed in the blood of his Son, and he welcomes me into his presence. So you're either here or there. Nothing in between. Uh, look at your Bibles and look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in, in him we might become the righteousness of God. Who's the him? Jesus Christ. Uh, he became sin for us. He took all of our sin so that what happens? We are made righteous and can go into the presence of God. So Paul doesn't talk about an intermediate state because there isn't one. We don't need it. We've been re generated, renewed, redeemed, made righteous through Christ. And that's what he's talking about. So anyway, let's go, go on here. In, in verse 6 he says, confident, we are confident. A better word for confident, I don't know if you mark in your Bible, but a better word for confident is courage. We are courageous. We are courageous. He says in verse 6, therefore we are always courageous and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Therefore, because we're getting this new body, we have courage. Courage. Where do you need courage? Well, you need courage in this life, right? You need courage in this life to stand up for the things that God wants you to stand up for. To stand up for the way that you teach your children. The way that you uh, love your spouse. You need courage to do that because the world doesn't want you to do that, right? What's the worldly influence? The worldly influence is do your thing. Do what you want. Make yourself happy. And so it takes courage for the believer to say, you know what? I'm all about somebody else. I'm about Christ. I'm about my family. I'm about the church. That takes courage. And he's saying, if you are uh, at home here or in, even in heaven, uh, earth or heaven, you need the courage. Now, he provides the courage, and the courage comes as a result of knowing that we're getting this new body in heaven. Now, look at verse 7. He says this. He says, therefore, we live by faith and not by sight. We live by faith and not by sight. Again, think about your life here and now. How are you supposed to live each life? Well, the psalmist says this. He says, thy word is a light to my path. That takes faith, right, to work with a light on the path. The picture is this. There were two types of lamps. One set of lamps would go on the end of your shoes. And so each step you took, what would happen? Well, you could see to take the next step. And so the idea is when we are living by faith, we are taking one step at a time. You know, God does not lead us by searchlight. He does not turn on the big searchlight and say, okay, here, everything's lit up. This is what you get to see, have at it. Instead, he lights us one step at a time, and we live by faith, not by sight. And, and this is a good reminder when he talks about living by faith. Not only do we live each day by faith, but in order to get into heaven, what do we need? Faith, Right? For by grace are you saved through faith, right? We're saved by faith. And so the faith that saves us becomes the faith that directs us. And he's encouraging us to live by faith. Now, this word live is the word conduct your life or walk. And so as we live our lives, we are living it in an understanding that we are going where? Heaven. We're going to heaven. There's an old, old hymn that we don't sing. And, and it goes like this. It says, the road leads home. The road leads home. Oh, who can mind the journey when the road leads home? We're going to heaven. So each day we are courageous. We are confident. We are stepping out by faith. Why? We're going to heaven. Heaven's our eventual place of rest, right? 
you know, I've been teaching. This is my 14th year. And it is amazing to me how often you can tell a student that's having trouble at home. Because if they're having trouble at home, they're having trouble at school. Because they have no safe place to go to or nothing to look forward to. No offense, I enjoy teaching. But if school was the only thing I had to do, I wouldn't be too thrilled about that. I love the fact that not only do I get to teach and have an opportunity to minister to students, but also I get to go home every day. And I love knowing that I can go home. And sometimes there are students and you can see the upheaval and the turmoil in their life because they have nothing else but school. They can't go home because it's so miserable. The Apostle Paul is saying, listen, we live by faith. We walk by faith. We have this understanding that we're going to be home someday. So whatever I'm going through now is temporary. And so because it's temporary, I'm getting this new body and off we go. I'm going to be in heaven. So we want to live as though each day heaven is real. We are courageously living because the best is yet to come. He says that in verse 8. Notice what it says. In verse 8 he says, We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. It's better. It's going to be better. I'm here. I understand that and I'm courageous. But I know I'm going to be with the Lord. Something better. You've probably heard this story, and I may have even used it here before, but there was a, a, a pastor that went and visited a woman who was in the hospital, and she was dying of cancer. And the pastor was going over the funeral service and getting all of the scripture passages and songs together. And as he was leaving, he says, now, did I forget anything? And she says, yes. She says, one more thing. And he said, what's that? And she said, I want to be buried with a fork. And he said, a fork? And she says, yeah, a fork. And he says, why do you want to be buried with a fork? And she says, well, she says, all of the dinners that I ever go to or whenever I go to someone's house or church social, they always tell me to keep my fork. And she says, whenever they tell me to keep my fork, I know that something better is coming, like apple pie or pumpkin pie or pecan pie or something like that. So the pastor said, okay, that's what we'll do. And so that's what he did at the funeral She had a fork in her hand. And as people walked by, they said to the pastor, why is she being buried with a fork? And he says, because she wants you to know that there's something better yet to come. And for her, and death was heaven. For us, as a reminder that heaven, and considering it now, we're going to have it later. So the best is yet to come. And Paul instructs us in that way. The third truth that will help keep heaven in our mind is found in verses 9 and 10. Heaven makes us ambitious. Heaven makes us ambitious. Notice what happens in verse 9. He says this in verse 9. I lost my place, sorry. Uh, Verse 9. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So verse 9, so we make it our goal to please him. The word goal there is this word ambition. So what Paul is saying is heaven becomes our ambition. We make it our goal. We devote ourselves zealously to a cause. What's the cause? Heaven. Heaven. He's telling us that we are going to be zealous. We are going to be driven. Now some of you are sitting there nudging your spouse. And saying, see, it's okay that I'm like this. 
Do you see what the rest of the phrase, what we're to be ambitious about? You see what he says? We are to be ambitious. We are to be driven to please him. Now, I'm going to close my eyes for a moment because I don't want to read your faces and I don't want you to nod your heads. But what in the world would someone say you're ambitious about today? Would they say, oh, man, they are so passionate about the Bengals. Oh, man, why? (laughs) But what is it that drives you? What is it that makes you zealous? Are you zealous to please him? That is the goal, the ambition to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it, come life or come death. We are ambitious about pleasing God. That's easier said than done. I know that. But think about this for just a moment. When when I was a kid, my mom was the head of our house. My father died when I was young. She's the head of the house. And so because she's the head of the house, everything I did, I wanted to please her. Well, I was afraid of her, one thing, because she had the fastest belt in northeast Ohio. But I wanted to please her, whatever I did. Did I make mistakes? Well, of course. Did I stumble and fall? Well, of course. But I, but I was thinking often, will this make my mom happy? I thought those things. So now, as we mature in our walk with Christ, all of a sudden we aren't saying, what would Jesus do? We aren't doing that. Instead, we're saying, does this make God happy? Does this please him? How I love my wife, how I treat my children, how I work in the church, how I listen to his word, how I pray to him, does it make God happy? Think about that for just a moment. That's what we mean by pleasing him. The word please is also used in, in, I think it's Titus, And it's used about a slave satisfying his master. And that's what we're doing. We're satisfying God with what we do. Are we driven? Does that become our goal to please him? You say, well, I never even thought of that. (laughs) Well, there's your answer, right? We want to please him and we want to make that our ambition. Uh, Please notice uh, what he's saying here. He says, come life or come death, we are ambitious about pleasing God. Now, I want to say this not in a hurtful way. And so I'm going to apply it to my, myself first. If I don't want to please God, why on earth would I want to be in heaven if I don't want to please him? So this morning, as you think about where you are in your walk with God, you need to ask yourself the question, do I want to please him? If you don't, then heaven isn't your hope. Because we want to please him. And again, we're not talking about perfection. We're not talking about everybody getting everything right. We are incarcerated by the flesh that limits our spiritual abilities. We understand that. But we still have this ideal that says, I want to please God. I want to please God. We are in the place that we are because of his grace and by trusting in him. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, to come to thee, O God, is to come home from all exile. To come to land out of the raging storm, to come to rest after long labor, to come to the goal of my desire and the sum of all my wishes, to come to you, O Lord, each day thinking of him. And as we finish up, look at verse 10. Verse 10 is the unhappy verse. We think this isn't a part of heaven I want to talk about. 
But Paul does, and I'll tell you why it's okay in just a moment. Notice what he says in verse 10. He says in verse 10, he said, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. The judgment seat of Christ. Uh, those that were listening at that time, they would have heard the word bema or bema. And they would have known what he was talking about. Because in every little town, in every little city, there was a bench called the Bema, the Bema seat or the Bema seat. And that was the bench where people would go and their cases would be heard and judgments would be made about a land disagreement or an animal dispute or something like that. And the judge would answer that. And so everyone that's in the audience is listening and they understand what he's talking about. And they begin to explain it. And he says this about this. He says, first of all, we must... This is not some optional thing. Every one of us in this room, we will be there. And he reiterates that in verse 10. He says, we must all. There are no exceptions. There are no exceptions. We will all go there. Don't panic. It gets better. It gets better. Stay with me and and you'll see at the end it's, it's going to be okay. And he says, we must all appear. The idea of appear is not just to stand there but to then open ourselves up completely, to manifest, to demonstrate, to show. So when we go before the judgment seat of Christ, we will show all that we have done. And he says that in verse 10. He says, we will show all that we have done while in the body, whether good or bad. And he says in the the verse, he says, we must all appear, each one of us. It's going to be an individual thing. We are not going collectively. We're going individually, and we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And he will then tell us what we've done, good and bad, and evaluate it. Please don't mistake this for the great white throne judgment. There's a difference. What we are being judged on here is our practice, not our position. Our position is secure because of what? Because of what Jesus Christ did. Remember in verse 21 of chapter 5? Christ died for me so that I could have the righteousness of God. So my position is secure. So when we appear before the judgment seat, he's not going to say, hmm, you don't get into heaven. That's not what he's going to say. He's going to instead say, these are the things that you have done. These are the good things and the bad things for me in your body that you possess. Please, please look. It says the judgment seat of Christ. Again, I don't know if you mark in your Bibles, but I would underline that of Christ. Because you see, what we have is we have not just some arbitrary or capricious judge that's going to say, you know what? Okay, I guess you you messed around here, you goofed off here. It's not going to be like that at all. It's going to be Jesus Christ who loved us, who gave himself for us, who is our Savior, who is our God, who is the one that wants us to be in his presence. And so he will use it as a time where he will not only uh, demonstrate and manifest and look at what we did, but he will use it to instruct us to understand and to be there through the difficult part of it. He will be there. So when you think about the Bema Seat, think of Christ being there, evaluating your life. You know, there are some people that I would rather them not evaluate me. But to think about Christ doing it, he will know me intimately. He will know me ultimately. He will know every detail and understand every nuance and motivation of my entire life. And so as he evaluates, he is the one that will be doing the evaluation. So when we are motivated by heaven and we have this understanding of his place in our lives, uh, we live for him. We please him. You see, the judgment seat is 
much more acceptable in our minds if we do what he said in verses 6 through 8. If we are pleasing, driven to please God, then the judgment seat will go better. Isn't that right? It changes our whole mindset and our whole lives as we understand the presence of heaven in our lives. There was a man, his name was Ed Card, and Ed Card was the superintendent of the Sunshine Rescue Mission in St. Louis, Missouri. At the end of every prayer or every sermon, he would blurt out, and that will be glory for me. That was how he would close. Uh, He would use the word glory, and he would talk about glory so much that he became known as Old Glory Face. That's what they called him. He had a friend. His friend's name was Charles Gabriel. And Charles Gabriel wrote in commemoration of Ed Card and his enthusiastic spirit, he wrote a song, Oh, that will be glory for me. And the words of that song are so beautifully fitting to finish off our message today. He says this in the song, When all my labors and trials are o'er, and I am safe on that beautiful shore, just to be near the dear Lord I adore, will through the ages be glory for me. When by the gift of his infinite grace I am accorded in heaven a place, just to be there and to look on his face, will through the ages be glory for me. Friends will be there I have loved long ago. Joy like a river around me will flow. Yet just a smile from my Savior I know will through the ages be glory for me. And then the chorus goes like this. Oh, that will be glory for me. Glory for me. Glory for me. When by his grace I shall look on his face, that will be glory. Be glory for me. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the goodness of your grace that guarantees us a place in heaven. But Lord, we do not want to think of heaven as out there, but we want to think of heaven as an influence here and now. And Lord, as we consider the realities of being in your presence, may we seek, may we be driven to please you. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Have a wonderful week.